0: Hey, good morning, folks. Hope you've come today to hear from the Lord, not from Keith. Hope you've heard come today to hear from the Lord. You know, the best and the worst things in life often come at unexpected moments. Isn't that true? The best and the worst things in life often come at unexpected moments. They, they are like a wave in the ocean that you didn't see coming but you felt it once it hit you. You've probably been to the beach. You've been out there and enjoying the water, and you didn't notice that wave that was coming. You didn't anticipate that wave was about to crash on you, and you didn't see it, but you sure felt it once it hit you. On Friday, my my buddy Dan Cooper sent me a picture. Let me just show you the picture without trying to introduce too much about it. Uh, It says our purpose, and the very next sentence says, to honor God in all we do. Now, you're going to be shocked to find out where that hangs. That, he took this picture at the Coca-Cola bottling plant, the new one over in Piedmont. I'm serious. At the new Coca-Cola distribution center uh, over here in Piedmont, on the, in the meeting room, here's what they've got on their wall. Our purpose is to honor God in all we do, serve others, pursue excellence, and grow profitably. Our purpose is to honor God in all that we do. Can I say to you, Friday was not a good day for me. You talk about unexpected turns. Zinny tried to tell me that that was the case at Coca-Cola. I didn't believe him. I thought he was full of my leg or something. It didn't help when, when my wife Lisa said, well, you know what your dad would do. Now, you need to, for those of you who are guests, you need to know that my dad worked for Pepsi, I'm a huge Pepsi fan because of that. I've got a Pepsi machine in my office and Pepsi collectibles. And my wife turned to me after I showed her this picture. She said, you know what? your Dad's in heaven now. She said, you know what? Your dad would do, don't you? And I said, what? She said, he'd start drinking Coca-Cola. And she said, he always put God first in everything. He'd start drinking Coca-Cola. To which I responded, I'm sorry, but I'm just not that man. I mean, I I literally, I sat there looking at that picture and I had a, it was like a knot in my stomach. I'm I'm not exaggerating, it was just awful. If you look up unexpected in the dictionary, it gives you this definition, not expected, unforeseen, surprising. You know, if we could predict everything that was going to happen, we could prepare for it, couldn't we? If we could see the wave coming, we could prepare for it. But life is not like that. Life is filled with unexpected turns. And sometimes those unexpected turns bless us. And sometimes the unexpected turns of life break us. As much as you want to plan your life, it has a way of surprising you with unexpected things that are beyond your control. And that really frustrates some of you. Because you want everything to be under control. You like to control everything about your life and your family. And sometimes life presents us with unexpected turns that we can't control. Those times are often more than just mere moments in time. They are in sometimes shaping moments, moments that shape the rest of our lives. All you have to do is ask the father of that little three-year-old boy in Orlando, Florida, who took his son for a walk in the in the water, or the edges of the, of the lake there in Orlando, that was no mere moment. That ended up being a moment that shaped the rest of his life and his family. So today we're starting a new series called Unexpected Turns. We're going to work our way through an Old Testament book that is filled with unexpected turns. It's the Old Testament book of Ruth. Would you find that little book just towards the front of the Old Testament, the little book of Ruth? While you're turning to that book, let me begin by just introducing the book to you. And I hope that you've got something to take notes with today as we kind of give you an introduction to the book, and then next week we will dig into the book. And I want to say that the very first statement I'm about to make is going to be so obvious, but it is so important. As I introduce this book of Ruth to you, I'm going to give you three words or phrases. And the first one is this. The book of Ruth is a story. Now, I know, again, that's very obvious, but, but would you write that down and think through it with me? Some scholars have called Ruth the perfect short story. Absolute perfect short story. You know, just yesterday, I listened on my Bible app. If you've got the Bible app, you could probably do this as well. Uh, I pulled up the book of Ruth on my Bible app and I listened to the book of Ruth. Uh, That guy who has the awesome voice, I I let him read the book of Ruth to me. And it was amazing. I had studied this book all week long. I had read this book several times already this week, this story, several times this week. But as I hit that Bible app and let that guy read the story to me, I was pulled into it. I, I was intrigued by it. I saw it, things in my mind that I didn't see when I was reading it. Ruth is the perfect short story. Now, because it is a story, we will approach it differently than we do other books of the Bible. You do this all the time when you read the newspaper. If, some of you don't even know what this is anymore, but this is a newspaper. And when, if some of you still take the newspaper, you get it out, and you read parts of the newspaper differently. You read the front page news differently than you do the funny pages. You read the funny pages differently than you do the editorial page. They have different genres. The key word there is they have different genres in the newspaper. You know what? They have different genres in Scripture too. And we should read them differently. Now that's not to say that they're not all inspired. They're all inspired equally, but there are different types of uh, genres in Scripture And the genre of this book is narrative. And again, let me say, that doesn't mean that this is less inspired. But it's a story. And so for that reason, I'm not going to try to impose an outline on this well-crafted short story. Let me show you the the, the purpose or the value of just the story and telling the story. You see these beautiful flowers here in front of the pulpit. Uh, They're placed in honor of Glenn and Jean Holliday's 50th wedding anniversary which was yesterday. Now, I've heard Glenn tell the story many times of how he and Gene met. In fact, there used to be this tradition. Every Christmas, during the the Deacon Christmas dinner, somebody would ask Glenn to tell the story of how Glenn and Gene met. And I asked my wife just this morning, I said, Honey, do you remember the details? Do you remember the story of how Glenn and Gene met? And she said, Yes, but it is not appropriate for you to stay in the pulpit. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you the story. All I will say is it does involve Gene in hot pants. Now, you don't get that in an outline, right? So if Glenn were to tell the story of how they met with an outline, like here's the outline. Well, point number one, there was the initial encounter. Point number two, there was an interesting conversation. And point number three, there was an invitation to go on a date. An alliteration, by the way, I don't know if you caught that. Initial encounter, interesting conversation, invitation to go on a date. We'd be like, really? There's nothing, there's nothing exciting about that. But now if you start talking about Jean in hot pants, we're going to remember that, right? So here's my point. We're not going to treat Ruth as a book to be studied We're going to treat it as a story to be told. There's nothing wrong with studying the book of Ruth. There's lots to study there. It's an intriguing study if you want to do that. But for our purposes in this series, we're going to treat it as a story to be told. So number one, the book of Ruth is what? A story. Number two, not only is the book of Ruth a story, number two, the book of Ruth is a love story. Ruth is the ultimate love story. If Nicholas Sparks were ever to write a romance novel based on the Bible, this would be the story he would write about. I mean, it's, it's the message uh, in a bottle and the notebook and the wedding all rolled into one short story. The book of Ruth is the Nicholas Sparks novel of Scripture. Ruth is a young widow who marries an older man named Boaz. Boaz falls in love with this young widow. She is penniless. He is wealthy. It's not likely for them to meet or to have a relationship. But they do meet, and they fall in love, and he becomes her kinsman redeemer. You say, well, what in the world is a kinsman redeemer? You'll find out if you'll keep coming to the series. It's a beautiful love story. But number three... Ruth not only is a story, it's not only a love story. Number three, it is a God story. Most importantly, it is a God story. See, the most important part of the story is to show God working his purposes out, even when it seems like he's hidden. Have you ever looked at your life? Have you looked at what's going on in your family? Have you ever looked at what's happening around you and wonder where God is? ever struggled with the fact that God sometimes just seems to be distant? He just doesn't seem to be there? Ruth is a story that shows God is working out His purpose, even when it looks like He's hidden. We learn from the story of Ruth that God sovereignly rules over all of life, not some of life. He sovereignly rules over all of life, and He brings blessings to those who trust Him. So the entire book is building towards a climax. The entire book builds towards the last verse. The whole book of Ruth, the whole story is building to a climax in the last verse. And you think, well, what's the last verse? I'm not going to tell you. We'll get that, well, you're going to turn to it anyway, aren't you? So let's just go ahead and turn to it. Uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 22. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Wow. Yeah, that's exciting stuff right there, isn't it? I'm glad we came to church today. It is exciting stuff. And if you'll stick with me through this series as we walk our way through this story, when we come to that verse which is the climax of the whole story, it will amaze you. At what God is doing. I'll give you the short answer. Ruth is a young pagan woman. Who lives in Moab. Who became the great grandmother of King David. And an ancestress of Jesus. You see here's an important point. I want you to get this. This is very very important. The Lord often has greater plans for our actions than what we can see in our earthly lifetimes. The Lord is often doing more than we can see in our earthly lifetimes. He has a greater plan than what we can often see in our earthly lifetimes. It occurred to me after I studied that probably none of the characters in Ruth ever lived to see David be king. They never lived to see the climax of the story. Oh, they may have lived to see David as a little baby, but probably none of them lived to see David become king. So, with that as an introduction, let me give, because there will be a test. Let me give you let me give you a rundown here. Three things: Ruth is a story. It is also a love story, and it is also a God story. Now, with that in mind, that's kind of an introduction. With that in mind, now we're ready to read the first two verses of this book. Uh, Luke, uh, Ru- Try again. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name Naomi. And the names of his, of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. They went to Moab... And lived there. Now, these first two verses tell us two very important things. First of all, they tell us about the time. The time in which Ruth lived. The book of Ruth is cast against the backdrop of the dark days of the judges. Here's how the story opens. In the days when the judges ruled. This was a period of time after Israel had gone into the promised land and before they had a king... It is known as the darkest days of Israel's history. Judges 21-25 describes this time as uh, a time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And and the book of Judges describes a a period of time where things went in a cycle. And let me describe the cycle for you. It was a, watch up here, it was a downward cycle cycle a downward spiraling cycle in the book of judges it went something like this the people of god were serving him and eventually they turned away from him and they started worshiping the little g gods around them because they were worshiping the little g gods around them god sent enemies from other nations against them to attack them as judgment When that happened, the people of God would cry out to God for deliverance. And God in His grace would send a judge. A judge was not a military leader. it was more of a spiritual slash military leader. He was not a king. He was somebody raised up for that moment. And that judge would lead the people of God back to God. Lead the people of God to defeat the enemy. And once they defeated the enemy, then these people were committed to God again. So long as the judge lived. But when the judge died, most often after the judge died, guess what they did? They went back to their old ways of worshiping the little G-gods around them. And the cycle continued. But watch this. This is so important. It's not just that that cycle continued. But there was this downward spiral. Because you know what happens? You don't just stay right here with God. When you disobey Him. Each time you disobey Him, your heart gets a little harder and you get a little farther from God. And when your heart gets harder and you get farther uh, from God, you get farther and farther away from God. It's exactly what's happening here. Let me show you this in Scripture. Look with me in Judges chapter 2. And the book of Judges is just to the left of Ruth. Judges chapter 2. Verse 18, Judges chapter 2, verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge, spiritual, military-type leader, temporary assignment, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died... Notice this. This is so important. Verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. The spiral was always downward. They continued to get worse after each generation. But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods, little g-gods, and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So this story called Ruth occurs during that time, during this dark time in Israel's history, during this time in Israel's history when the nation was continuing to get worse year after year. Listen, it's a lot like what I see happening in America today. Isn't it true, would you not agree, that it just seems like every year we're getting further and further away from God? Isn't it true that just about every year we look back and think, how in the world could they do? We wouldn't even think of doing that just last year. And now we're doing this? How how is it that we're getting so far away from God? Every year it just seems like we're getting farther away from God and we're spiraling downward and downward and downward and downward into moral decay. Would you agree with that? That was what's happening in the days of the judges too. It was a dark time in Israel's history. It was the darkest time in the history of Israel. And in the darkest time of Israel's history, God was at work. Not in a nation, but in an individual and in a family. Could it be that even if America is going down the tubes, could it be that God could still do a work in your life? Yes. Could it be that while we're spiraling down into moral depravity, that God Almighty could still work in your life. Yes. Yes. The story of Ruth shows us that so clearly. Ruth is considered a bright spot in the Bible against the black, black darkness of the book of Judges. So, we know a little bit about the time of the story. It happened during the time of the Judges. Verse 1 and 2 also tell us a little bit about the place, or maybe I should say places, of this story. Because two are mentioned. Verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem, there's the first place, a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. There's the second place. Bethlehem. We're told that in the land of Bethlehem there was a famine. Now that's kind of ironic because did you know that the name Bethlehem means house of bread? In the house of bread, it was empty. The house of bread was empty. There was famine in the land. The story of Ruth is the story of of a family trying to survive in the house of bread when there is none. The story of Ruth, it's interesting to me, begins and ends in Bethlehem. It's the same place that would one day be called the city of David. It's the same place that would one day be called the birthplace of Jesus. In that small little city, that significant little town, this is the place where the story of Ruth unfolds. The house of bread. Where one day, the bread of the world would be born. So that's the first place. And then the second place that you need to know about is a place called Moab, a country called Moab. Now, you may not know where that is, so I've got a map that will give you a little bit of an idea we're going to put on the screen of where Moab is. The, the, the red box to my left is Bethlehem. Uh, the, the red box to the right is the country of Moab. It's the east of the Dead Sea. It is not in what was considered the Promised Land. It was not part of the Promised Land. It was, not, it was enemy territory. It was pagan territory. Uh, It's interesting that in Psalm 108, verse 9, God says this about Moab, the country of Moab. God says, Moab is my wash basin. You say, well, Pastor, what does that mean? I'm not exactly sure. But I do know this. Apparently, God did not hold that area, that country, in high regard. And there's probably at least three reasons for that. Let me give them to you as I try to help you understand this place called Moab because it is so significant to this story. Three things about Moab. Number one, the Moabites were descendants of Lot from his incestuous relationship with his firstborn daughter. That's how the country got started. That's a pretty bad start, isn't it? They're the the result of an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughter. tells you a little bit about, that's Genesis 19 if you want to read it later. Number two, they were the Jews' enemies because of the way that they had treated God's people as God's people were coming from the south here, from Egypt, up into the promised land. The Moabites came and attacked them. The Moabites mistreated them during this time. So they were, they were enemies. They were longtime enemies. Number three, during the time of judges, during this dark spiritual time in the land of, of, of the promised land, Moab invaded Israel and ruled over the people for 18 years. That's Judges chapter 3. For 18 years, this heathen, pagan nation was in charge. They ruled over God's people in Israel. So, let's describe Moab. Moab was a place that was born out of an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughter. It was a heathen, pagan nation, an enemy territory. So, here's the question. Why would Elimelech go there? Why would Elimelech go there of all places? Why would Elimelech go there? I'll tell you why. Because his family was starving. Because he was looking in the eyes of his wife and his two sons and there was no food to give them. His family was starving. Now, I want to ask you, a everybody look at me. Everybody look at me. What would you have done What would you have done if you were living in the house of bread, and there was none? And you hear that in Moab, there is bread. In Moab, there is food. What would you have done? This was during the days of Judges, when spiritually speaking, the nation was at an all-time low. Maybe because of that, because the nation was at an all-time low, that might be why there was a famine in the land. The famine might have been God's judgment against the land. We don't know what it's like to live through a famine, do we? You know, your biggest question perhaps today, your biggest question is, biggest decision is going to be, where do we go out to eat today? Or maybe your biggest decision is, what am I going to cook today? Or worst case scenario, you may have to go to the grocery store today. We don't know what it's like to live through a famine. So what do you do if you're a Limelech? What do you do if you're looking into the face of your wife and your sons and you're the father, and you're the husband, and you need to do something to help your family, what do you do? Do you stay in the promised land and trust that God will somehow provide? Or do you move your family to Moab so that your family can survive? Now, some have viewed Elimelech's move into Moab as a disobedient act that God later judged. It's interesting that once Elimelech gets into Moab, verse 3, dies. Some have looked at that and said, see, that's God's judgment. In fact, God gave His sons the opportunity to repent and after 10 years, they didn't repent. Instead, they took Moabite women as their wives and when they did that, they died. So some theologians would, would surmise from that Listen, this was God's judgment on him because he walked away from God. He walked away from the promised land, and he went to a pagan land. He he was trusting in that instead of trusting in God, and and, and that's the reason that that he had all of this problem. Some very good scholars believe that, but I come back to a very basic question. What would you do if you were in his shoes? So here's what we're going to do today. i got time to do this. We're going to take a boat. I just want to know where you stand. Now, now, now you've got to vote. You can't wimp out. All right? You've got to tell me which one you're going to do. Because God's watching. All right? Now, you can go to heaven if you get this wrong. So don't sweat it. Just tell me what you would do. If you were a Limelech, if you lived in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and there was none, and you hear that there is bread in Moab, though it is a pagan nation, and one of your enemies... But you look into the face of your wife and your sons and you think, if I don't do something, we're going to starve to death. Do I stay here in, in Bethlehem and trust that God will provide because we are his people and this is his land? Or do I move to Moab so that we can survive this famine? So we're going to do like the Britons did this week. We're going to vote on stay or leave. That's what the Britons, the Brits did stay or leave. So, so, stay is, I would stay in Bethlehem. Leave is, I would go to Moab. Okay? So, how many of you, men, women, everyone involved, how many of you would stay in Bethlehem? Raise your hand. All right? How many of you would leave and go to, to Moab? Yeah, see, this shocks me. I thought it would be just the opposite. I thought good church people would say, I would stay in Bethlehem and trust God. But even in the first service, in the first service, which is typically older congregation, in the first service, and I'm not saying anything bad about it, but I was absolutely shocked. In the first service, most of those people said, I'm going to Moab. <laughs> I mean, it just shocked me. There was only like three, four people who said, no, I'd stay in Bethlehem. It's interesting to me. You say, well, pastor, which one is right? You come back next week and I'll tell you. See, every good story has a hook. Every good story has a cliffhanger. But here's my lesson for today. We all encounter unexpected turns in life. Things we didn't anticipate. We didn't see the wave coming. Some of those are good. Not all unexpected turns are bad. Some of those unexpected turns are good. And some of those unexpected turns are tragic here's the lesson it's what you do between them that really shapes your life it's not really the unexpected turn that shapes your life as much as what you do after it what you do before the next one what you do between the unexpected turns is what really shapes your life how you respond is more important And what happened? Decisions in life are not always easy to make. If you're in Bethlehem and you're trying to decide whether or not to go to Moab, that's a hard decision. Knowing what to do next can be extremely difficult. Knowing if this is right or wrong can be extremely difficult, especially if you're living in a time when the people around you are spiraling downward into more moral depravity. When the people around you and the community around you and the nation around you, uh, when, when things are just seem to be spiraling down around you, trying to do what God wants and know what God wants is sometimes extremely difficult. But I'm going to ask you today to put your faith in the God of Ruth, who is at work even when it seems like he's hidden. In fact, I want to give you a prayer. A prayer that you can pray today, a prayer that you can pray this week. And the prayer is very simple. It goes like this. God, I need you to lead me through this unexpected turn of events because you are sovereign and your ways are best. God, I need you to lead me in this unexpected turn of events because your ways are sovereign and are best. God, I need you to lead me through this unexpected turn of events because you are sovereign your ways are best. Tim, convinced that for some of you, you're saying, Pastor Keith, I'm telling you, everything around me is spiraling downward. And I don't know what to do. I don't know if I stay or if I go. I don't know what to do. Such a hard thing to decide. Maybe just start here. God, I need you to lead me through this unexpected turn of events. I didn't see it coming, I was clueless. I didn't see it coming. I didn't know that wave was about to crash on me. God, I need you to lead me through this unexpected turn of events because you are sovereign. Your ways are best. Kind of sounds like another verse in the Bible, doesn't it? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. Uh, Pastor Keith, can I tell you all all the junk that's happening around me? Yeah, you can, but can I tell you this? in spite of the junk or even with the junk, here's what you need to do. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. and Lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. Pastor Keith, but, but, but my heart is broken. I understand that. But here's what you need to do. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. Because here's what I want you to hear. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to know this and we're going to learn this over the next several weeks. The God of Ruth is still on His throne. The God of Ruth is still working your life even when it seems like he's hidden. Let's pray about that. God, we need you to lead us through these unexpected turn of events because you are sovereign. And your ways are best. So in the name of Jesus, as people pour out their hearts to you today, as they cry out to you and ask for your deliverance, your assistance, your direction, may they from a genuine and sincere heart say, God, I need you to lead me. Because you're sovereign. Your ways are best. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.